As you're taking your seats there, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 5. And I want to begin by reading our text this morning. It's encouraging to celebrate the new life in Jesus Christ, and it's encouraging to think about all of the people in the early church in the book of Acts committing themselves to Jesus Christ. And as Brian mentioned, the church began by submitting themselves, and one of the ways they did that was by publicly aligning themselves, unifying themselves with Jesus Christ through the act of baptism, symbolizing the washing away of their sins, symbolizing their death to their old way of life, and their rising in newness of life in Jesus Christ. And those individuals have multiplied. They're in the thousands now at this point in Acts chapter 5. And they've been rallied together, unified around Jesus Christ into what we call the church. This institution through which God is working in the world to bring to the nations the message of hope and salvation in no other name under heaven but Jesus Christ alone. And the authority and rule of Jesus Christ is one of the things that is being declared to the world, and it's one of the things that the church is being reminded of in the early days. And that's exactly what we see happening as we transition into one of the most fascinating events that takes place in the life of the early church with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. It's a staggering account That should cause us to pay special attention to what God wants to say to us this morning. It begins like this in chapter 5, verse 1. A man, but a man, excuse me, named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. But Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, 
once had a man come to him in his own church, and this man came and expressed his desire to leave the church. He was uh, taking back his membership, and he expressed that his desire was to leave, to go out and find the perfect church. And Charles Spurgeon, in his famous wit, looked at the man and said, well, if you go and find it, please don't join it because you'll ruin it. There are no perfect Christians, and there certainly are no perfect churches. And all of God's people said, amen to that. It's the heartiest amen I've got all year. (laughs) Christians are often accused of being hypocrites because they struggle with sin, but struggling with sin does not a hypocrite make. No, struggling with sin and pretending you don't is what makes you a hypocrite. The word hypocrite is a a Greek word that comes out of the ancient kind of Greco-Roman world and it has its roots in the the theater. And the term hypocrite was something that was a neutral term. It wasn't seen as negative or positive for that matter, but it was a term that was used for the person who played as an actor in the theater, on the screen, so to speak. And the person at that time would wear a mask to cover up their true identity and they would pretend, just like actors do today, to be somebody else, somebody they're not. And so this word hypocrite has now shown us or taken the form in our culture of somebody who plays a part, who wants to look a certain part, but in reality is somebody very, very different. Pretending you are something you're not. That's hypocrisy. And Jesus Christ gave graphic descriptions of hypocrisy when he spoke specifically of the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, some of the vivid pictures that should pop into our minds of how he spoke to them remind us of the nature of this kind of of, of living. And he looked at these Pharisees and he said, you're like dishes and cups and plates that you clean the outsides and so they look sparkling and pristine, but when you flip them over and you look at the most important part, the part you want to eat off of or drink from, it's filthy, it's dirty, it's unclean. Or he said to them, you're like those, those whitewashed tombs, right? They look beautiful and ornate on the outside. They look put together. But when you roll away the stone and you walk inside, they're full of dead man's bones. And while the early church seems to be off to a near-perfect start, the reality is they can only go down from there. We're reminded at the onset of the very earliest days of the church that the greatest opposition we face and the greatest opposition the church has always faced comes not from outside the church, listen, listen, but from within the church. And the greatest opposition we face comes not from outside ourselves as individuals, listen, but from within us as individuals. In many ways, hypocrisy is killing the church. It's not uncommon to walk into churches, and every church has this problem, to find a bunch of people play acting, a bunch of people pretending to be something they're really not. And in many ways, the more that this exists in the church, the more the church suffers, the more the people suffer, and the more ineffective the church becomes. It becomes a church that is self-focused, self-sufficient, self-sustained. And I believe it's time, especially for us as a church, as God speaks to us through his word, to consider how hypocrisy might be affecting our own church, our own personal lives, and how God does not want hypocrisy to kill the church. He wants the church to kill hypocrisy. 
That's the message of Acts 5 in a nutshell. And killing hypocrisy begins, note this, with identifying sinful plans. That's what we see taking place in the very first couple of verses. It begins with a contrast. Notice that little word, but, there, showing a sharp contrast with what has come before. There's a link back to the previous verses, and this contrast is important because two individuals, really a couple and an individual, are being contrasted. We saw at the end of last week as the church was flourishing, they were healthy, they were thriving. The church was marked by a remarkable kind of care and selflessness. It was, remar- it was marked by a kind of generosity that was unheard of in the world. People were selling their possessions, they were giving to the poor, and the Word of God tells us that in that early church, there wasn't even a needy person among them. And here's what's so important about that. Everything the church did in those early days, they are doing, it it reminds us, excuse me, that what they did, they did because they passionately loved Jesus Christ and they were committed to and consumed with the mission of Jesus Christ. They wanted to make Jesus Christ known. They were so grateful for what Jesus Christ had done in their own lives personally. Their hearts had been so radically impacted because they had been given new life in Jesus Christ. Everything had changed. And Barnabas is put forward as an example of one who is honorable, one who believes firmly in the mission of the church, one who's being used effectively by God, one who is committed to proclaiming Christ above all else. And he's propped up as a kind of model, and the encouragement of the church is be like Barnabas. Look at this guy, he's so consumed with what I'm doing through the church. He's unashamedly committed to the things of Christ above all else. That's why his name is what it is. His name means encourager. He's all about promoting Christ. Don't miss that. That is so key to understanding the contrast here that Luke is drawing. And as we read what made him a standout or why he was highlighted, there's a few things that are stated about him in the previous verses. It tells us that he sold a piece of his land and he brought in the proceeds and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He brought it all and he laid it at their feet. Ananias and Sapphira, interestingly, start off the same way, but verse 2 tells us that there are some radical differences. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. By the way, Ananias in Hebrew means God is gracious, and Sapphira in Aramaic means beautiful. And let me tell you, there is nothing gracious or beautiful about what they do here. It says, notice, in parallel to what Barnabas did, they sold a piece of property, and then here's where it goes astray, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid at the apostles' feet. There's a strong parallel here that Luke is drawing between an Old Testament account. In Joshua chapter 7, You don't have to turn there. Let me just refresh your memory. For some of you, this might be new. But there is a helpful point of history in the nation of Israel where Israel is going into the promised land. Moses is dead and Joshua has taken leadership of the people of God and they're called by God to go into the the land and take possession of the land that God was giving to them. A part of their taking possession was, uh, uh, what required of them was to be obedient to God and his purposes. 
And they went in and they, they start conquering, but they get to this place called Ai, and all of a sudden, Joshua sends the troops into battle and thinking that they're going to conquer because this surely is what the Lord has promised and told them. And they come back running for their lives. Multiple Israelites just massacred and slaughtered in the battle. And Joshua is hanging his head before the Lord and saying, God, what happened? How, how did this happen? And in chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, look at this, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. In verse 11, it says this, it says, Israel has sinned, this is what God tells Joshua, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. You see, God required that when they went into this battle, whatever they took, whatever they found, whatever they pillaged from those who they conquered was to be devoted to the Lord and his purposes. It wasn't for personal use. Nobody could take it. It was already given to the Lord. And in Joshua chapter 7, Israel suffers because one man named Achan decided to rebel against the plan of God and the command of God, and he took for himself what was not his, what was devoted to the Lord. Achan stole money and clothing after the destruction of Jericho. And the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Make special note of that. The word that's used here in Acts chapter 5, that they kept back some for themselves, is an interesting word. It's used very seldomly in the Bible. It's used once in Titus chapter 2, and the word that it's kind of translated as is pilfered or embezzled. The same word is used in the Old Testament translation of the book of Joshua, the Greek translation, in this account here in Joshua chapter 7. They kept back, they embezzled, they pilfered, they took what wasn't theirs. And that's the implication of what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. In other words, you say, you look at this, look, it was their piece of property. Peter highlights that. You didn't have to do this. He's going to get there. We're going to get there. But part of what you need to see is this. They were looking at what Barnabas did, and they saw that this man was highly praised and honored. He gave all of the proceeds, and he gets this great nickname. They make it seem like they're doing the same thing. but they keep back what's not theirs. You see, they had probably verbally committed to sell this land and give all the proceeds. They probably made that abundantly clear. And yet what they did was they kept back some for themselves. And what you need to see is this this word that's being used, this kept back, it means this, it's not accidental. It's planned, it's calculated. To all appearances, here's the point, Barnabas and and Ananias did the same thing. Both of them sold property. Both brought the proceeds of the sale to the apostles. Both committed it to the apostles' disposal. The difference was that Barnabas brought the sale, all the money from the sale, while Ananias brought only a portion of it. There's a massive combination here of dishonesty and deceit, but it's far more sinister than that. You know, a lot of people preach this text and they they say, well, the point is just don't lie and don't steal. And that's the moral of the story. It is so much worse than that. 
And it goes so much deeper than that. It's so much more sinister than that. This calculated plan of Ananias and Sapphira was a grave mistake. They gave. That's, that's not the problem. In fact, I would say that's quite honorable. It's how they gave that was the problem to God. The church thinks that he's giving for Christ. That's what you have to see here. They think that he's all about Christ. They think that this man is committed to the cause. They believe that this man is all about the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how he's portrayed himself. And all the while, in his very calculated efforts, he is only doing this for himself. He pretends he's doing it for Jesus. This is not a story about telling a lie and stealing, not primarily. This is about spiritual hypocrisy that pretends it is consumed with the Savior when in reality it is consumed with self. See, long before the sinful action was committed, this is what Luke wants us to see, long before the action was committed, it wasn't a spur of the moment lapse into sin. This was a pre-planned event in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias should help us to examine our own hearts. It's important that we too identify who we are living for. You know, I love the songs that we sang this morning were so, so perfect and they highlighted that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I hope you recognize that, that he reigns supreme. But the issue, the issue for every single Christian, somebody who proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, is to wrestle with and examine your heart to determine, is that actually true of my life? Is it something I say with my mouth or I pretend with my life, but in reality, Jesus is not the Lord of my life, or certainly I'm not going to allow him to rule and reign in my life. I'm going to live for me. This is all about me. It's not about him. Whose plans are you following? As you live your life, just ask yourself that question. Whose plans am I following? Am I, my plan, am I following the plans of my own design for my own progress, for my own advancement? Or am I following the plans of God for his progress, for his glory, for his advancement? Who do I live for? That's where we start in this story. The text identifies the sinful plans of Ananias and Sapphira, and it presses us to consider our own lives and to identify any sinful plans that may exist there. To identify if Jesus Christ really is the one who is sovereignly ruling our lives, that every area of our life is submitted to him. Killing hypocrisy requires, secondly, exposing spiritual pride. Exposing spiritual pride. Peter sees right through the facade and he goes right for the heart of Peter. Excuse me, he goes right for the heart of Ananias. The overt sin was lying by publicly pretending to have given all the proceeds of the sale of their property. But that sin was only an outward manifestation. The deeper, more devastating sin was hypocrisy based on a desire for spiritual status. It was spiritual pride that was driving this man. It was being thought of by others a certain way, by presenting himself a certain way. He wanted the praise of man. He did not want the praise of God. He wanted the approval of men. 
I mean, the whole point behind his sacrificial act was to be thought of as a member like Barnabas, to be esteemed and honored like Barnabas. We know that's what's going through their mind when they do this. I mean, look at how everybody loves Barnabas. Look at the praise he's getting. We should, we should be getting some of that for ourselves. Verse 3 says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Remember, this this wasn't forced giving that was required of the church. He didn't have to give everything. He, He could have sold a part of it and given a part of it. He didn't have to commit it all. That's the point, though, is he did commit it all, and he defrauded God by keeping back secretly for himself, and he wanted to double end the deal. He wanted to benefit by getting the the love of the people and the praise of the people while keeping some of the possessions and money for himself as well. John Stott says that they wanted the credit and the prestige of sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. I love that. He says, so in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive is giving in giving was not to relieve the poor or honor Christ, but to fatten their own ego. So in other words, they wanted the reputation of Barnabas without the heart of Barnabas. Jesus had some incredibly strong things to say to the hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 6, listen to this, he says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's saying this, by the way, to people who would proclaim to be followers of Christ, proclaim to love God. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have, they've received their rewards. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. This is what the hypocrite does. Look at me. Look how righteous I am. Look at all the godly things I do. Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus said, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. It's the nature of a hypocrite. Peter looks at Ananias and says, why'd you do this, Ananias? And by the way, did you notice what Peter also identifies? He sees not only the hypocrisy of Ananias, but the subtle activity of Satan. He looks at Ananias and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? What's the idea here? What's happening? How does Satan operate in the life of a believer? And by the way, I'm not sure if Ananias and Sapphira are actually saved. The text doesn't actually tell us either way. The point is they certainly thought they were saved, and there's a good chance they actually were saved. But there's also the reality, and I wonder if the word of God just kind of leaves this open. I wonder if the word of God is intentionally saying, look, I'm not going to make a statement about whether they're saved or not. forces us to consider our own hearts to determine where we're actually standing with God. So what's, what's happening here? 
Well, it's interesting, the same kind of language, if you remember back to the Gospel of John, if you were here with us last year, in John chapter 13, the same kind of language is used in reference to Judas. Remember that at the, the last supper, during supper, John 13, 2, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. In other words, Satan had already been working behind the scenes, and somehow he had put it into the heart and mind of Judas to betray Jesus Christ. Judas was one, remember, who looked the part as well. Remember, he, he looked like he belonged to the people of God, but he really didn't. There's something fascinating to, in this text. Did you notice that it is Satan explicitly who is given the credit for tempting or for putting into the heart of Ananias this deceptive move? Satan himself. Very rarely are we told that Satan himself is, is working in such a way. You read through the Gospels and you see all kinds of demons at work. You know, there is a spiritual realm that we are living in. Satan and his demons are real. But not often do we see Satan himself going after somebody in this kind of very direct and specific way. And I find that incredibly fascinating. Why does Satan personally do this? Why doesn't he use another demon? You think about that? Why doesn't he use one of his, you know, kind of lower level demons? Why doesn't he delegate this responsibility? Satan is not omnipresent, right? Satan is not like God. He's not everywhere at once. He's spatially confined. He has to move around like every other demonic being or angelic being. Why is he present here? manipulating these two individuals, tempting these two individuals to sin. Why did he do that with Judas? I think the answer is fairly simple, but it's, it's an incredibly important thing to take note of. Listen, if you want something done right, do it yourself. And here's what you have to see. Look, the task, the, the seriousness of what was happening in the church dictated that Satan not leave this up to some lower level servant of his, but that he himself attacked this. He saw the seriousness of what this meant. He saw the church picking up steam. He saw the gospel advancing. He saw people being gathered into the bride of Jesus Christ. He saw the glory of God's name putting on, being put on display. And in the same way that he got at Judas to try and betray Jesus, try and take it down from the start, he wanted to take the church down himself at the start. He hates the church, he hates what they're about, he hates what they're doing, and he hates when they're successful. Listen, Satan, Satan doesn't bother with a church that's ineffective for God. Did you know that? He, if, if a church is busy with themselves and it isn't consumed with the glory of God and isn't promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan's like, I'll leave them to themselves. I got bigger fish to handle here. I got bigger things to go after. I'm gonna go after the people who are effective. By the way, this is very personal too. I'm going to go after the effective Christians. I'm going to go after the effective churches. And if I take them down, then the devastation will be catastrophic. You see, I can get to so many more people. I can wreak so much more havoc. I can do so much more damage that way. Satan is seeing something so powerfully at work in the church, right? Their prayers, that their commitment to pleading for God for his power to show up, and the power of God coming in full force. The unity, the serving one another, the honoring Christ, the testimony it is to the world, and he's wanting to shut it down and shut it down in a hurry. The, 
The greatest attacks on the church are always spiritual. And they're always within. The greatest persecution we face is not from outside of the church, it's from Satan himself. There is an important warning here. And then I believe, I hope you do too, I believe God is doing something in the life of our church right now. And, and I believe that, that there are some significant things happening, but I believe we're on the cusp of seeing some incredible things happening. In one sense, we're enjoying a season of blessing, effectiveness, and progress in the gospel, and I'm praying that that continues to increase. And if that's true, I think we as a church can anticipate, and you as an individual believer, if this characterizes your life right now, if you're just advancing in godliness and Christ-likeness, if you're seeing so much fruit in your life, and you're just praising God, you can be sure of this, that Satan and his demons will want to attack you. He will aim to destroy the unity by promoting division and disunity, and one of the ways that Satan attacks from within is by exploiting our desire for spiritual pride. Our hearts are so prone to this temptation. And that's exactly what he goes after with Ananias and Sapphira. And by the way, Satan filling his heart, I believe this has to do with temptation. This isn't something that, you know, we, we like to say that Satan made me do it. That's not the way God views this, and that's not the way Peter did this. He goes after the heart of Peter. Did you notice how he, he does that in verse 4, halfway down? He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. You see, you're responsible. Satan tempts you, Christian. Satan tempts you all the time, just like he tempts me. But every time we fall and every time we sin, no matter how great or how little the sin is, we are responsible. There is no place for blaming Satan in our sin. There's a place for recognizing how he wants to work to trip us up and to pull us away from God. Our hearts are so prone, they're so similar to Ananias and Sapphira in so many ways. Our culture teaches us, right, that we, we want to be, we want to make it. We want to make something of ourselves. We want people to recognize us. We want to have something behind our name to pass on to our children. We want to leave a legacy. And our culture promotes, you know, fame and fortune and popularity and reputation and all those things. And our hearts so desperately crave those things. But in the process of seeking those things, listen, we often abominate what the church is all about. And it's possible to do this in the church of Jesus Christ. And part of the message of Acts chapter five, listen, I love you and I have to say this to you just like I have to say to me, the church is not about me and you. It's about Jesus Christ. We're not here to entertain you. Our worship ministry, our kids' ministry, every ministry in this church, we do not exist to entertain you or to woo you to Jesus Christ as, you know, as if we're playing some kind of a pragmatic game to make you feel good about yourself. And I need to tell you that because, listen, this is not about you. It's all about Jesus Christ. And he is enough to woo your heart. And if he's not, there's nothing I can do for that. And each one of us needs to examine our hearts and we need to evaluate what's going on. Listen, if, if you're in a ministry and you're serving faithfully, you need to ask yourself some, quest, some questions because if you, if you serve, if you lead, if you teach, if you speak, if you give money, if you attend events, if you attend church on Sundays, if you do any of this for you, you're no different than Ananias and Sapphira. 
and neither am I. It's about him. It's always been about him. And, and what's so fascinating is, is if you draw the parallels to what happened with Achan in Joshua chapter 7, do you remember what, when, when Achan's sin was found out, when God kind of narrowed it down in his sovereignty and pointed out that there was sin in the camp and that Achan was responsible, Joshua goes up to Achan. Do you remember what he says to him? It's going to be on the screen if you don't. Look at Joshua 7.19 right here. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord of Israel, the God, Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. That is so significant. You can leave it up there for a second. That, that idea of give glory to God, it means this, establish or weigh the glory to God. In other words, give it back to God. You've taken it for yourself when it's not rightly yours. You need to give it to God. And the way you do it, do you notice what he says next? And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Expose the sin, bring it to the light, confess your sin, repent of your sin, deal with your sin. Give glory to God. Stop stealing glory for yourself. Stop making yourself appear to be something you're really not. Stop trying to make people think you're righteous and, you know, and praising you. They shouldn't be praising you or thinking you're righteous. They should be praising God because he is righteous. And the principle for us is the very same Bring sin to the light. Expose the sin. So how, how serious is this? How, how serious is exposing sin to God? Well, killing hypocrisy requires cultivating a serious perspective. It's so serious, look how serious this is. By the way, you have not lied to men but to God. Did you know anytime you sin against others and you sin against the church, you sin against God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He drops dead. <laughs> this is amazing. This is staggering. It's likely that this took place in a public setting. Listen, their sin was public. That's part of the reason this happens. They wanted the public praise so they will get the public punishment. And so here they are. They've got, you know, Ananias, he's got his money and he's given it and he's saying, here it is. And Peter's like, is that all of it, Peter? Or excuse me, Ananias? And Peter's like, really? Is it, is it really? And he's like, yeah, there it is, just like I promised. Really? Why have you lied? You haven't just lied to men, you lied to God bam, he falls down in front of everybody. And I can imagine at this point, there is a hush that goes across the congregation. Nobody was expecting this. This seems a little bit overboard. But this tells us a number of things that we need to know and they need to be embraced by the church of Jesus Christ. God is serious about the church. Paul refers to the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. 
He, he looks at his bride, and what he longs for in his bride is that she be pure and spotless, that she be washed and cleansed by the water of the word of God. You know, Jesus Christ is looking forward to the day where we have that wedding ceremony where the church at the end times is presented to Jesus Christ in all of its splendor and all of its glory. And can you imagine Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, the perfect, holy, great I am standing before a bride wearing filthy, dirty, smelly rags. He cares deeply about the church. He's serious about the church. This is his bride. This is his body. This is his dwelling place. This institution, the church, is the power of this age whereby God is advancing his mission. The church is no trivial thing. The church is not a social club. It tells us that God is not only serious about the church, that he's serious about his mission. The mission of the church matters deeply to God. It's so serious that God is willing to inflict serious punishment towards those who distract from the mission. You see, that's what was happening here. Ananias was all about his own mission for his own glory when the church is supposed to be all about God's mission for his glory. God is serious about sin. The church is ineffective where sin is allowed to run around unchecked and undealt with. It's a testimony to the world. Listen, the church is a testimony to the world of the character of God. We paint for the world a picture of who our God is. And one of the things that God requires of the church to paint for this world is that our God is holy, holy, holy. He is a God. Listen, this is so important because if we present a a picture to the world that God doesn't care about sin, then they can never find salvation in Jesus Christ, right? But if we show the world that God is so holy, he is so perfect, he is so pure, he cares deeply about what is right, we're telling the world something about our God and we're showing the world that if this world wants to get in relationship with this God, something needs to be dealt with is their sin, Their sin is alienating them from enjoying a relationship with this God. And we look at this and we say, thank goodness this doesn't happen anymore, right? And yet when we look at the scriptures, what we know is this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that some of you are sick and even dying for taking the table, the Lord's table, in an unworthy manner. 1 John 5, 1 says there is a sin that leads to death. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that people are supposed to be put out of the church, handed over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. And certainly this isn't happening quite as drastically as it used to. Why is it happening like this here? Why did God see fit? I mean, this, this sounds, again, over the top. It seems unbelievably harsh, but you need to see this for what it is. This is a loving and gracious warning from God at the very earliest days of the church to deal with sin the way God requires us to deal with sin. God is establishing a precedent for the church. You say, why doesn't this happen anymore? It doesn't have to. God, God, God gave an object lesson at the very beginning of the church and he established that purity in the body of Christ matters immensely to him. This is why the Bible requires the church to practice 
church discipline. You know, that 1 Corinthians 5 passage, putting people out of the church, Matthew chapter 18, dealing with people, dealing with sin, and if they're unwilling to repent and be reconciled, listen, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It has to get put out. It has to be dealt with, and that's an act of God's grace. God has always established the seriousness of sin throughout the life of his people. Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament, and the, the, the two sons of Aaron offered strange fire to God. They offered an, an offering and a sacrifice that he did not ask them to give, and instantly they're burned up with fire from heaven. Uzzah reaches out and he tries to steady the Ark of the Covenant as God said that nobody should touch. As it's falling down, even with good motives, he tries to touch what should not be touched by any human being because God is so holy, and instantly he falls over and dies. Achan took what was not his, stole glory from God, and was stoned to death. God is serious about holiness. That's the culture that the book of Acts is creating in the church. A church that is consumed with the holiness of God and consumed with displaying the holiness of God by dealing with sin in the body. And I just want you to notice a few things as it comes to our life. Notice what happens in verse five. When Ananias heard these things, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. I bet it did. The young men rose up, wrapped him up and carried him up and out and buried him. Why did they carry him out so quickly? Do you notice this? I mean, there's no time for a funeral. There's no time to kind of go through all the normal ritualistic aspects of the funeral. They get him out and they bury him. And this is, this is significant because in, the De- in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, listen, the word of God says that you bury the cursed person immediately. They believed that this was so serious that Ananias was cursed by God. This man had done something so serious, so devastating and then look at verse seven. Uh, after an interval of about three hours, she's busy doing her hair. <laughs> His wife came in. And I say that tongue in cheek, but here's, here's, you know, again, this is speculation, but here's what I think. Like, why aren't they together? Look, look, she's preparing for the, the pomp and circumstance. She's, she's wanting to walk in all pristine, all done up so she can get the honor and glory. I mean, my husband's already brought this gift, certainly. Everybody's gonna know by the time I walk in. And when I walk in, everybody's gonna be clapping and cheering and maybe I'll have a nickname just like Barnabas and everybody's gonna love me. And so she walks up to the front expecting praise. And there's a little bit of a play on words here. There's some irony as well. See, Savira comes in and she doesn't know what's happened. (laughs) Meanwhile, back in verse chapter two, she was a co-conspirator and she did this along with her husband. She sells this property with full knowledge. Now she has no knowledge of what's happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Peter's given her a way out. Do you see this? Sapphira, all you got to do is tell the truth. 
She says, yes, for so much. Yep, that's, that's the right amount. We, we gave it all just like we said we would. Where's my plaque? Well, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard of these things. Sapphira tests. Do you notice that word that's used here? Prior to this, Ananias is said to have lied not to men but to God. And here, Sapphira is said to have tested God, tested God's spirit. There's a difference in those two things. One says that this is what I'm doing. The other says, what are you going to do about it? That's what a test is, right? It's seeing how you respond. I give you a test to see how you'll respond to the questions I ask. And here, she is said to have been testing the Lord. She detracted from the purpose of the church. She stole the glory of the church for herself. And then she looks at Peter and she essentially is saying to God, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? If if I choose to live my life for me, if I choose to proclaim the name of Christ, and if I choose to kind of live this hypocritical life, if I choose to do this, what are you going to do about it, God? Isn't that the way so many Christians live? I mean, they don't say it like that, but that's the way they live. They want to live as if Jesus Christ is their Lord and Master, and they're happy to say it on Sunday mornings in church. And then they want to go out in the world, and they want to say, God, I don't care about you. I don't want to live for you at all. I just want to have the benefits of a supposed relationship with you. I would argue that that is a form of testing God. What are you going to do about it, God? Well, you know what happens to her? Bam, she falls dead just like that, just like her husband. The same punishment. And there's bookends to this section. And you need to see, this is what God is pressing into the church. This is what God wants to press into our hearts. Both verse 5 and verse 11 tell us, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The fear of God and the fear of his power at work doesn't work only for our benefit to be you know, a powerful influence in the world, to make an impact in the world. You know, we believe that the power of God working through us is an amazing thing. But it also works in our own perspective of the church and Jesus as Lord of the church. Great power is to be celebrated in the church, but we handle it with great care and reverence. And I think, too, that this is helpful for us to consider. I believe in many ways this has been lost in the church. You know, the church has become a place of entertainment. A place has be- church has become a, a place where people love to come and celebrate, but in many ways the church has become a place, and in many Christians' lives, God has become a person who is worthy of celebrating but not worthy of reverence. I think so often we are far too lax in our approach to God. 
And while we enjoy the benefits of the salvation of Jesus Christ, there always ought to be in the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ a knowledge of the one whom we approach. He is not our buddy. He is our king and our master. The church needs to recover a serious desire to honor the Lord and exalt Christ above all, including ourselves. And so, church, this is a serious call for serious perspective. This is a call to holiness in the church of Jesus Christ. This is a call to deal with our sin before God does. Finally, killing hypocrisy results in producing supernatural power. There are many who believe today that the church shouldn't deal with sin the way the Bible says to. There are many today who believe that if you, if, if you preach on sin, if you're hard about sin, if you tell people that God is, is not happy with sin and that they need to repent, that then somehow the church is going to be emptied. You know, you can't attract people with a message like that. I mean, people don't want to hear things like that. You get to tell them things they want to hear. Tell them things that make them feel good about themselves. Tell them things that make them happy. I mean, if, if we embrace an approach to dealing with sin the way the Bible says, I mean, many would argue that that is not exactly a great church growth strategy. That it would be a deterrent to actually winning people to Christ. And humanly speaking, that may be true, but that fails to consider the supernatural blessing that God pours out onto the church for diligently obeying him. And in verse 12, it says this, notice this, and I believe this is as a direct result. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. You see, the fear was beginning to spread. People were understanding that this was a serious place and that God was certainly present among them. And, and listen, it was a call, it was a reminder to the world that you just don't walk into this kind of faith, this kind of religion. You don't treat God in a trivial way. If you're going to understand that this is who God is, if you're going to follow this Jesus Christ, then it means everything to you. There's no room for playing around. There's no room for facades. There's no room room for pretending. There's no playing games when it comes to this God. Do you see that point there? Because if you do want to play games, you do so to your own peril. God doesn't withdraw his power. In fact, as a result of this kind of faithfulness, of this kind of commitment to purity in the body of Christ, he continues to unleash his power as the apostles continue to do miraculous signs. And that's just evidence, listen, that God is saying, keep going, the mission is not being deterred. Satan will not thwart my mission. A a little bit of sin in here can be dealt with and we're gonna keep moving forward in great power. And by dealing with sin in this way, listen, God's reputation is not diminished, it's established. Verse 13, who who are the none of them being talked about here? None of the rest dared join them. These are the outsiders. These are people who are looking on from the outside. They're unbelievers and maybe people who have been looking and saying, what's happening here? There's something amazing. And wow, look look at the benefit of this community. And they're seeing, but wait a second here. It's more than just people helping each other out. 
this place is serious. And if I'm going to sign up for this, I'm going to be fully committed to this, and I'm not going to walk into this trivially. That's what dealing with sin does. It presents a picture of God that is accurate and serious, which causes people to carefully consider what it means to give their life to Jesus Christ. Jesus is established as the Lord of the church, and he is the central authority. It's all about his glory. That's what's being screamed through this passage. And in verse 14, we notice this. It's not a complete deterrent because many more, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You see, Jesus is not only the central authority in the church, he's the centralizing authority. In other words, he's like a magnet where Jesus is rightly seen. He's like a magnet that just pulls people in. People are seeing the miraculous power of God and the authority of God on full display through Jesus Christ so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. You see, they saw this, that even this Lord Jesus has the authority over every sickness, over every disease. He has all the authority to make everything right. And for the first time, we see the gospel going outside the bounds of Jerusalem. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. There is in this event an inherent reminder that God's presence brings both grace and judgment. To submit truly to him is to escape final judgment from sin. The the judgment faced by Ananias and Sapphira here is earthly and temporal, and if they're saved, listen, you need to understand this, they're at no risk of losing their eternal salvation. They did not, if they're saved, they didn't lose their salvation. They lost their earthly life. But what we see from this is that God's judgment is real. It's real in a very practical and real sense for believers now, but listen, in an even greater sense, it is real. Eternal judgment is real for those who fail to bow the knee to the central authority of the universe, Jesus Christ. He is the supreme authority. And for those outside the church, many were struck by the reality of eternal judgment that awaited them if they continued to resist the authority of Jesus Christ. And the message of the apostles continues to go forth. You do not have to face judgment. You can come to Jesus Christ today and find mercy and grace in the name above all names, Jesus The call of the apostles to those fleeing to Jesus was escape the wrath to come and embrace the salvation that is here. When you come to Jesus, eternal judgment and wrath that you deserve because of your sin is utterly removed because it's placed squarely upon the back of Jesus Christ. The hope of the gospel is this, that those who bow to Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith in Jesus. Experience the grace of God because all of their sins that they deserve punishment for are wiped away. 
And all of the perfect life of God, the perfect holiness of Jesus Christ required to be in the presence of God is granted to you because Jesus Christ lived that life that you couldn't live. He rose from the grave. He defeated the punishment that you and I deserve. He stands victorious. And now because of faith in him, we stand in victory in his name. The early church was growing, a growing church because it was p- a pure church. They were a clean channel through which the power of God could flow, and the supernatural power of God through a purified church is beginning to have greater and greater impact for Christ. He's drawing them in. He's pulling upon the entire world because he is the one true authority of the world. The church didn't lower its standards in order to win the lost. They gave themselves completely to Christ as Lord. I want to ask you just to take a moment as we finish up. I want you just to pause. Settle your hearts for a minute. This is a weighty, weighty passage. And and my prayer is I do not want this to be lost on us as a church. God is establishing some incredibly important principles for the church to be grounded upon if the church is going to be effective, if the church is going to make an important dent in the world, the dark world around us. And it begins, listen, with a church that is passionately committed to Jesus Christ as Lord, a church that is praying fervently for boldness and courage and the power of God to be exhibited and manifested among them. And a church, listen, that is committed to dealing with sin the way God calls us to deal with sin. So I want to ask you to do something. I have four responses here, I think, that are important for us. The first is this, examine our hearts. Who am I living for? Expose our sin. How have I been promoting self instead of Christ? Express our repentance. Who have I sinned against? Whom have I sinned against? And experience his grace. How can I be forgiven?